0: Have you ever heard people who have been disappointed by God? Perhaps you yourself have had experiences like that. Uh, People hoped that God would do something great for them. They may have prayed and really hoped for a particular outcome uh, in a situation. But when the time came for that hope to be delivered or fulfilled, uh, they hoped Uh, the hoped-for outcome did not happen. And uh, they may have felt, people in that situation may have felt that God had let them down. When people are disappointed with God or feel that God has let them down, uh, there's usually some level of presuming upon God. Uh, To presume upon God is to make assumptions that God will act in Specific positive ways when in reality he may not. And holding on to those positive assumptions uh, is not warranted in every situation. Let me give you an example from scripture, a short one. Uh, At one point, the devil tempted Jesus to throw himself off of a very tall building. And the devil quoted, a biblical promise that God would send His angels to protect Jesus. But Jesus did not fall for the trap of presuming upon God and force His hand to do things in a different way that God saw fit. So Jesus responded to the devil, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We presume upon God when we make inadequate assumptions about how we expect God to act in a particular circumstance. And those assumptions are usually not complete or they just may not be right altogether. To presume upon God may involve taking one of God's promises and assuming that he must act in a specific way in a specific positive way that we expect Him to act in our situation. But, friends, God is God. He is sovereign. He acts in ways that He sees best fit for His glory. And those ways are often not our ways. And this morning, we will see an example of, of people. The people of God presuming upon the Lord, presuming upon God, and the folly of what that led them to uh, to eventually experience. As we continue our journey through the book of First Samuel, I'd like for us to consider the folly of presuming upon God. And our passage this morning will be First Samuel chapter four. We'll be reading from verse one to verse twenty-two. First uh, First Ch- Samuel chapter four, uh, verse one. 22. If you are using one of the Bibles that we provide in the chairs in front of you, you may find this passage on page number uh, 228 228. I pray that you would open God's word and follow along, because uh, what we want to do this morning is listen to the word of God and uh, hear how He revealed himself to His people, even at a time when they expected God to work in a very different way that God, than God actually yeah, ended up working. Here's God's word for us this morning. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Afek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great, a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of His word for our hearts? Let's pray. Father, would you reveal yourself to us through the word that we have heard this morning. Would you let your word bear fruit in our hearts. Convict where there needs to be conviction. Warn where there needs to be warning. Awaken where there needs to be awakening. Bring life where there needs to be life. Encourage where there needs to be encouragement. In comfort where there needs to be comfort. We pray all this in the name of Christ and for the edification of your people. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The folly of presuming upon God. Verse 1 of this story starts with the words, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This particular phrase really belongs not to chapter 4, but to chapter 3. The divisions of chapters in the Bible are not inspired. This part of the verse um, it really is a closure to what happened in the story of chapter 3. But reading it, it actually helps us understand a contrast between what happened in chapter 3 and, and what is turning on and what's happening in chapter 4. It helps us to see the, a great contrast. If in chapter 3... We have seen the story of how God established, called Samuel to be his prophet and established him to be a, a man who, to whom the Lord would reveal himself and would speak to Israel. God established Samuel as a prophet. It's as if the author, the narrator of the book of 1 Samuel, is putting a pause to that scene and says, for the next three chapters, I want to tell you another part of this story. And for, for the rest of chapter 4... For the rest of chapter 5, and for the rest of chapter 6, we will not hear about Samuel or a word that comes from Samuel until we'll get to chapter 7. So for the next three chapters, the the word of the Lord that came to Samuel and through Samuel to the people of the Lord is once again silent. What we see here in chapter 4 and then chapter 5 and 6 is, is that the ministry that God began to do among uh, the people of God through the raising of Samuel is for the moment, if you will, in the narration, put on pause because God has to clean out the house, the corrupt priesthood, which was characterized by disobedience, by rebellion against God, and by care for honoring people more than honoring God. In the story of cleaning up the corrupt priesthood so that room is made for Samuel to really begin working and begin unfolding his prophetic ministry. In the story of cleaning up the corrupt priesthood, we see the people of God presuming upon God, assuming God's favor and help, confident of his protection, when in reality, God had warned them of his judgment. This is what it means to presume upon God. It means to pick and choose what we like about God and assume that God is there to help us accomplish our man-made hopes. And the battles in 1 Samuel 4 expose the folly of presuming upon God. As in any portion of Scripture that presents us a narrative like we have here, uh, we interpret narratives by considering the scenes that develop in the story, considering the plot, considering the crisis that unfolds and the climax of the, of, the, of the crisis. And this morning, the story that we have before us in chapter 4 can be divided in four scenes. Each of these scene, uh, scenes develop or reveal how the crisis of presuming upon God unfolds. As we look at these four scenes, if you like taking notes, Here's the, here the, a way we can summarize each of these four scenes. They all tell us something about presuming upon God. The first scene, presuming upon God seeks to control God. Presuming upon God seeks to control God. The second th- a part that we'll see in the second scene is that presuming upon God starts with enthusiasm but ends in devastation. Presuming upon God ends with enthusiasm, but ends in devastation. In the third scene, we will see that presuming upon God betrays a low view of God. Presuming upon God betrays a low view of God. And finally, presuming upon God ends in losing the glory of God. Presuming upon God ends in losing the glory of God. Let's look at each of these scenes and how this how the story unfolds and develops for us, presuming upon God, seeks to control God. In verse 1, we find out that the Israelites had a battle against the Philistines. Uh, The Israelites gathered their army at a place called Ebenezer. Now, we all know the word Ebenezer because in chapter 7, Samuel will tell us what that means. Uh, It means, till now, the Lord has helped us. And we love the Ebenezer of chapter 7, uh, but we are surprised to find out that the, the Israelites drew against, in battle against the Philistines at a place called Ebenezer. In chapter 4, though, the place where the Israelites gather, called Ebenezer, ends up being the place where they lose in battle. In order to understand this battle well, we're going to have to keep in mind the context of the battle which takes place in chapter 7. When we get to chapter 7, we'll, we'll see a contrast between these. But here, just, just briefly to notice, in chapter 7, the Israelites are facing again the Philistines in battle. But in chapter 7, Samuel finally gets back on the scene. He gets back on the stage. And in chapter 7, Samuel leads God's people to face the Philistines by calling the people to repent and turn away from their idols, to forsake their idols. What a strategy for war. But in chapter 7, God intervenes, and God begins to fight on behalf of the people of God and and wins the battle against the Philistines. But here in chapter 4, the people of Israel are trying to manipulate God to accomplish their desired results without considering what caused God to fight against them. Uh, The first battle at Ebenezer um, is uh, a battle in which the people lose 4,000 soldiers. So at the end of that first battle, they ask a very good question. Oh, friends, it's such a good question. Look at verse 3. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why? Has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? What a great question that was. They were correct to realize that the one who defeated them that day at Ebenezer was the Lord. Now, yes, if you are a soldier in the battle, you would say the Philistines were the ones fighting against Israel. But the elders, when they thought through it all, they realized it was the Lord who used the Philistines to defeat the Israelites that day. But this is an example that God often uses means, whether circumstances or people, to deal with us and sometimes to defeat us through others. Sometimes we may be very angry at people, at the means or at the circumstances that the Lord uses, But it's very possible that really the Lord is using people and circumstances because actually He's fighting against us. The elders get it and ask a great question. But they gave the wrong answer, they gave the wrong solution. Instead of letting the Lord answer the question, instead of waiting on the Lord to hear, Why was it that the Lord defeated them that day? Notice what they do. They hurry to find a solution. Verse 3. As soon as they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They go on and say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. In verse 3, the leaders say, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, some commentators say, well, oh, here they are looking at the ark to save them. In the Hebrew language, the it could also be translated he, the Lord. In other words, it's unclear if the Hebrew uh, uh, elders of of the Israelites really thought that the ark itself was going to be the means of victory. Or that the ark represented the Lord, and that the Lord would come among them and win the battle. On a first appearance, there seems to be some good in this idea. In verse 4, when the elders send for the ark, notice how the ark is described. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. All those were true statements. The, 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 the Lord of Hosts, it means is the Lord of the armies. To recognize that God is the God of the armies is a good thing. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of Hosts, they needed help. They appealed to the God who is the God of the armies. It was a true statement. They also recognized that the ark represented the throne of God. It was a place where God would meet with his people based on the shedding of blood, which covered the sins of God's people. They recognized that the Ark was the art of the covenant. God had made a covenant with his people. And the Ark contained the tablets with the Ten Commandments. That was a summary, the testimony of of the covenant that God had made with his people. So on first appearance, they're describing the Ark really well. Theologically astute, theologically correct. God, indeed, is the one enthroned between the cherubim. So they thought, they hoped that bringing God into the battle through the symbol of bringing the ark into the battle would save them from their enemies. But what's wrong with this idea and with this solution? Two things are wrong with it. First, there's a discrepancy between the way they asked the question and the solution they gave. They assumed... That even though God had been against them in the first battle, they assumed that they can now force God to change the outcome of the battle by bringing the very symbol of the presence of God into the battle. They assumed that by bringing the physical ark into the battle, it would bring about their desired results. They assumed and hoped that they can make God be a servant and an executioner of their hopes. They did not consider whether or not there was any other cause for their first defeat. A second problem with their solution was that they forgot that the covenant which the Ark represented, which God made with them, the covenant, included not only covenant blessings, but covenant curses as well. Listen to What was part of the curses of the covenant? Leviticus twenty-six, verses fourteen through seventeen, God said through Moses. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statues, I'm sorry, my statutes, and if you, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments. But break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And he begins a number of things that he lists as covenant curses. And one of them in that bullet points of covenant curses is the following. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Moses repeated these covenant blessings and curses to the second generation of the Israelites as part of the covenant blessings and curses. Moses said the following in Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. In other words, this was part of what God said He would do to His people if they were to break the covenant with God. And this is exactly what happened throughout the entire book of Judges when people turned away from the Lord and God would let them lose battles against the enemies and would give them over to the enemies. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 4 as well. They started and framed the question well. Why did the Lord defeat us before our enemies today? But they did not consider what the Lord had said in His word about the covenant curses as well as the covenant blessings. They got the blessings, but they ignored the warnings. They ignored the curses. They presumed only upon God's blessings without taking to heart His warnings and curses. They were more interested to get their desired result instead of asking themselves, what was the root of their defeat? And what was the Lord trying to do to them through their defeat? Friends, In 1 Samuel, the the elders of the people are the ones who come up with this wrong solution. This is an example that even the elders can be wrong. Even the elders can be wrong. And here the elders are giving a wrong solution. We will see them give another wrong solution in chapter 8. When the elders of Israel come to Samuel and ask for a king. How sad. The very ones who are supposed to lead God's people well. They're the ones who who do a half job, ask the question well, but then give a wrong answer. They want to bring God as a solution to their problem. That was good. But they do it on their terms to accomplish their, the outcome that they had established. Friends, it is a good thing for us to want to bring God into the picture of our lives, into everything that we do. That's a good thing. But when we hurry to bring God to execute our human solutions, instead of hearing from God, his solution, we too are in danger of trying to control God and to bring about our desired results. Friends, don't pet yourself on the back just because you think and say that you want to bring God into the issues you are facing. That's a, that's a good step forward, but if you just stop there, you might also be in danger of presuming upon God. Ask yourself the next question. Are you bringing God into the issues because you want him to deliver a particular outcome that you established for him, that you wrote for him and said, Lord, this is what I want you to do. Or are you appealing to God because you want to hear from him and you want to pursue his solutions? And consider perhaps how you are actually contributing to the problem. But notice who else is happy to presume upon God. It's not just the elders with their man-made solution. It's also Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, these two sons have appeared in the book of 1 Samuel from the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, when Shiloh is described, when we're told where Elkanah would take his family to go to worship annually at the the temple of, of the Lord, we were introduced to Hophni and Phinehas. And throughout this book in every chapter they show up. And there what we actually get about them is their rebellion against the Lord even though they served as priests of the Lord. Notice that in this chapter Hophni and Phinehas are willing to go with the ark of the Lord in battle. Now they're not soldiers. They're priests. They're not supposed to go in battle to fight, but they're willing to go with the ark of the Lord as priests. They're willing to go and take the ark to the battlefield. They're willing to risk their lives. Uh, Friends, rebellious and wicked priests who disregarded the word of the Lord are nevertheless interested here to protect the ark into the battle, presuming upon God who would give them victory over their enemies, friends, presuming upon God can look to us as devotion and even service to the Lord. Just as Phineas and Hophni that day chose to be servants of the Lord by going with the ark into the battlefield. You can imagine the the risk they have assumed. Imagine Hophni speaking to his wife that morning, honey, I know you're pregnant, but i got to go do this thing. I've got I to go and serve the Lord. i got to take the ark into the battle. I'm a priest. It's my duty to do so. We're going to win today. Friends, we can do acts of service for God as a transaction with God and assume that God will surely look favorably towards us because of what we do for Him. Are there ways in which we can look at what we might do for the Lord as a means of manipulating the Lord? Is it possible for us to care more about the things belonging to the Lord, like Hophni and Phineas caring for the ark, than to care for the word of the Lord? Is it possible that some people may be willing to risk and do risky things for God while at the same time remaining far from God? Because they only want certain results out of God and desire to manipulate him. We see a second scene in this story developing. Presuming upon God starts with enthusiasm but ends in devastation. Presuming upon God starts with enthusiasm but ends in devastation. This is the second point we see. And we see this in the scene that begins with uh, with verse 5 to verse 11. Notice how the entire people react when the ark is brought into the camp. In verse 6, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? There's great enthusiasm, great enthusiasm among the people at the arrival of the ark of God they got their hopes up hopes of victory over their enemies and friends may i just say their enthusiasm had historical precedent first of all in the book of numbers moses said the following upon about the the ark setting out from the camp whenever the ark set out moses said arise o lord And let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. What a great verse. Or the people could have remembered an even greater story in their history. Remember the great victory, the first victory in Canaan over Jericho? In Joshua chapter 6, it was God who commanded to lead in the conquest of Jericho by sending first the priests with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And the very loud shout of the Israelites in Joshua 6 was was a means by actually bringing about victory over Jericho. In 1 Samuel 4, the very loud shout of the Israelites suggests that perhaps they thought... They were about to repeat the history of the victory over Jericho. In other words, there was historical precedent for taking the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the context of conquering the enemies. This is not the first time it happened. But unlike the story of Jericho, where it was God who commanded them to lead the conquest by having the Ark in front of the army, The Israelites assumed that they can make God be on their side by bringing the Ark of the Covenant on the battlefield. But they were going to learn that when sin is ignored in the camp, it brings not victory, but God's judgment. Just as after the battle of Jericho came the battle before the small town of Ai, and the people of Israel were defeated. The scene that begins with so much enthusiasm in 1 Samuel 4, yet turns in devastation, gives us a warning. And the warning is this. Enthusiasm about God is not a shield for our disobedience. You cannot replace disobedience with excitement about the Lord. Enthusiasm about God is not a shield for our ignorance of God's Word. Today, today. It's tempting for some Christians to focus just on having religious enthusiasm but lack interest in knowing what God has revealed Himself in His Word. People can have a false hope in God if they try to use God for their purposes instead of knowing God as He revealed Himself in His Word. And particularly, instead of paying careful attention not only to His blessings but also to His warnings. Their enthusiasm was short-lived, for God brought on them that day a devastating blow. We are told in verse 10 that Israel was defeated and fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. What a great loss. Friends, God is willing to let us experience deep disappointments and pain, even disasters, in order to blow up our distorted expectations of God. God is not here to serve us. We exist to serve Him and follow Him. If we are more interested in results and success than in obedience to god we are not far from the same kind of presumption that the israelites had when we are interested more in just getting out of the mess we're in than actually dealing with the root of our problem we are tempted to take the same path as the israelites did to use god To get out of our mess instead of turning to God and see the root of our spiritual mess. The second scene ends with an important detail that somewhat is surprising. In verse 11, even though 30,000 foot soldiers died on the battlefield that day, the author is interested to tell us the details of only two people who died. The rest are anonymous. They are a list, a nameless list. But there's two people who the author wants to make sure we know that they died. And who are they? Hophni and Phineas. Look at verse 11. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. Now, why is the author focusing on these two names? You would expect the focus would be on the ark right now, but here the focus falls on the death of Eli's sons. What's the point? Well, remember the judgment that God gave earlier in the book in chapter 2? A man of God came to Eli and decreed to him that God's judgments are coming against Eli's house because Eli honored his sons more than God and that did not restrain his sons who were priests and who acted corruptedly uh, and, and rebelled against the Lord in their offices as priests. But Eli allowed them to go on with their corruption. The man of God said this in chapter 2, verse 34, And this shall, be, shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phineas. This shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. So bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield was a means by which the elders and the people tried to manipulate God to bring them victory. But God used their attempt to manipulate God to bring Hophni and Phineas to the battlefield to kill them. Otherwise, Hophni and Phineas would have not been on the battlefield. There was no reason for them to be on a battlefield. They were priests. But God used what people thought to manipulate God. God actually used to accomplish His purposes. In doing so, God fulfilled His word. The point of focusing on the death of Hophni and Phineas is to show us that God was in control in all this by fulfilling what he had decreed earlier. The devastation God brought upon Israel was a sign not of God's lack of self-control, but quite the opposite, that God was carrying out his warnings and his decrees of judgment. Friends, we presume upon God when we embrace only his positive promises and rejects taking to heart his warnings and judgments. We might say, oh, the Lord won't do that to us. Friends, when churches or Christians only focus on God's promises to bless, but do not take to heart God's warnings, we too may experience the premature enthusiasm of the Israelites, only to find ourselves later down the line, experiencing the devastation that God may bring against his people. That's scene two. Presuming upon God starts with enthusiasm and ends in devastation. Let's look at scene three. a third lesson about presuming upon God. Presuming upon God betrays a low view of God. The third scene unfolds from verse 12 to 18. And the entire focus of this third scene is is bringing us to see how the people received the news of the devastation that happened on the battlefield. The details of this third scene focus on Eli's response. We see Eli presented in verse 13 as sitting on his seat by the road watching. Later in verse 15, we're told that Eli's eyes had become blind. You're wondering, why was he waiting on the road watching when he was actually blind? Doesn't make much sense, does it? But we're told why he was watching. In verse 13, we're told that his heart trembled. For the ark of God. The curious part here is that Eli earlier was not trembling for the word of God. At this point, he's not even trembling for his sons, he's trembling for the ark. As the scene unfolds, the man who brought the news finally comes to Eli, and notice what causes Eli to fall off his seat and break his neck and die. In verse 18, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. What was it that caused Eli to fall down and break his neck and die? It was the news of the ark of the Lord. We see in Eli such a great concern for the ark. But he had shown no concern for the God of the ark. He had despised and ignored the warnings of the God of the ark of the covenant. Eli trembled for the ark instead of trembling for the word. It is possible for us, dear friends, to be more concerned for the outward things that represent God more than concern for God himself or more than concern for the word of the Lord. And there's an interesting detail about Eli's death. We're told that Eli fell off his seat and broke his neck. Earlier in the book, in chapter 2, Hannah sang a song of praise. You remember Hannah's song of praise? One of the lines in that song, Hannah said in chapter 2, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Now we would expect... The Philistines to be the adversaries of the Lord who would be broken to pieces. But here in chapter 4, it's the people of Israel who are broken to pieces. And even worse, Eli's very neck is broken to pieces. In chapter 5, another one will break its neck. In chapter 5, it will be the statue of Dagon that will fall off and break its neck. How sad that the priest Eli had the same destiny as the statue of Dagon. Friends, when we have a low view of God, when we tremble more for that which is created, instead of trembling for God and trembling before His Word, we should not be surprised that we end up having the same destiny as the idols do. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make them, Referring to idols, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Eli's destiny became the destiny of Dagon because Eli, as a head priest, allowed for a corrupt priesthood. And he himself honored his sons more than honoring God. Friends, to presume upon God is to be confident in his blessings while ignoring his word. To presume upon God is to assume that you can use God for your purposes instead of seeking to know, how his, to know His purposes for you. To presume upon God is to presume and assume your desired outcome is more important than God's word and revelation. And a final lesson we learn about presuming upon God is in the fourth scene. The fourth scene is in, chap- in verses 19 through 22. In this final scene, Presuming upon God ends in losing the glory of God. Presuming upon God ends in losing the glory of God. The final scene focuses on another response, not only from Eli, but now from the wife of Phineas. She was pregnant. She was so pregnant that she was about to give birth. And when she does hear the news uh, of the ark of the Lord being taken, being captured, When she hears news that her father-in-law died and her husband died as well, she goes into, into labor. She gives birth. But in the process of giving birth, she becomes so ill that she dies. But before she dies, she is able to choose a name for the baby. And the name she chose is Ichabod. And the significance of that name is in verses 21 and 22. The glory has departed from Israel Because the ark of God had been captured. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Chapter 4 ends with the birth of a son. Just as chapter 1 in the book of 1 Samuel ended with the birth of a son. In the book of Samuel, the birth of sons are important. But the son born in chapter 4 represents a tragic event. The glory has departed. This is how the story of Eli's household comes to an end. With seeing the glory of God having departed from Israel. Friends, it's not the only time in the history of God's people when the glory of God departs from his people. Later in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, around the time of the exile into Babylon, had a vision of the temple of God. It was a vision of what had taken place through the exile. In this vision which Ezekiel recounts in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11, Ezekiel sees in slow motion the glory of the Lord departing from the temple slowly, stopping at a few points on the journey out of the temple. More important and weighty than the taking of the people of God out of their land was the reality that the glory of God had left God's temple. But here in 1 Samuel, The Lord didn't take the people out of the land. The Lord allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines. And the explanation we get for that is that the glory of the Lord had left the people of God. What a tragic event that was. But as tragic as the death of 34,000 soldiers was, an an even more tragic reality was that the glory of God had departed, had left the land, had left The people it was not that the power of the foes was stronger than God, even though the enemy boasted in their power, even though the enemies recognized that the gods of the Israelites uh, did amazing things in Egypt, the Philistines got courage and they said, let's, let's fight against them and they won, but it was not their power that won against the Lord. We find out that it was the Lord who removed His glory from His people, and the Lord delivered His glory to His enemies. Listen to the commentary that we get in Psalm 78 about this episode in Israel's history. And by the way, it's always a good practice to interpret the Bible in light of other verses that make reference to the story. And our story of the destruction of Shiloh and and the the covenant, uh, the ark being taken, is mentioned, is commented in Psalm 78, the passage that Dan read earlier for us in the service. In verses 58 through 61, here's what it says. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, The tent where he dwelt among mankind, and he delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. Who did the delivering? God did. God caused the departing of the glory. It was not the Philistines. It was not their stronger armies. It was the Lord. The Lord delivered his glory to the hand of the foe when God had seen the rebellion of his people. God chose to give His glory because His people were rebellious. But there's a rather interesting detail here. Instead of taking the people out of the land, this time God chose to take His Ark of the Covenant out of His land. I love how one Bible commentator pointed out Yahweh went into exile, taking on the curse of the covenant for His people. A sinner or pattern, friends, took place when God sent His Son, Jesus, who took upon Himself human flesh, became like us, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the covenant entirely in an absolute way, not missing one Yoda of it. And yet, Jesus was forsaken by God. And took upon himself the curses of the covenant. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, it seemed to the world that God was defeated, that Jesus was defeated forever. All his glorious works during the earthly ministry seemed to be all voided. Yet, it was by taking upon himself the curses of the covenant that Jesus triumphed over the foes of his people, over sin and death. The sin of God's people brought about the loss of the glory of God. This is what sin does. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we have hope of being restored to the glory of God if we repent and trust in Christ, not presuming upon the grace of God and not taking lightly the kindness of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, Oh, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Friends, the tragic losses that Israel experienced that day, the 30,000 soldiers, the loss of the priesthood, the loss of the ark was the accomplishment of God's purposes. Sin brings death. Sin brings the loss of the glory of God. All this is the work of God. Don't presume that God only works in blessings. He also works in judgment. God brings His glory both through salvation and through judgment. The greatest act of God working through judgment is when He judged His Son, Jesus, on the cross. God acted against His Son instead of acting against us in our sin. If we would only put our trust and faith in Christ. Outside of Christ, God will show His glory in judging us. In Christ, God has shown His glory in judgment upon Jesus. Friends, how are we tempted today to presume upon God? Here's how a non-believer presumes upon God. A non-believer may believe in God. A non-believer may believe in the existence of God. Once some time ago, I talked to someone who Uh, I asked him about God, and he said, I'm okay with the man upstairs. I'm okay with the man upstairs. Presuming upon God, oftentimes look like a self-impression that you are okay with God. Friends, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, or perhaps even if you think you are, but you think you are okay with God, without having repented of your sins, without having grieved over your sin, without having being convicted by the guilt that your sin produces before a holy God without turning to Christ and putting your hope in him, your confidence that you are okay with God with a man upstairs is a presumptuous confidence. I want to encourage you to turn to God, turn to him in repentance and faith. Ask of God as we have sung earlier in in the service, God be merciful to me. For Christians, we can be presumptuous with God by thinking that if you wear a cross, that somehow that's some sort of spiritual protection or spiritual benefit for you. Or if you keep your Bible open in your house, it provides some <laughs> spiritual protection for your family. Or if you keep your Bible in your pack on campus, that somehow you're going to be protected from temptation. Oh no, that's, that's presumptuous. It, have, it has no, no meaning to keep the Bible in your pack if you don't keep your Bible in your mind, if you don't keep your Bible in your heart, to think that you can have an outward prayer of repentance, being sorry without a deep contrition of, rebellion, of over your rebellion against the Holy God, even a prayer of confession might be presumptuous if you take sin lightly. To think that you can disobey God and assume that you can come back to God later and ask for forgiveness... Oh, friends, that is so terribly presumptuous. Some presume upon God thinking that they are okay just because they serve God in so many ways in the life of the church. They do not realize that you can serve God, even risk your life for God, and be far from God. One of the reasons why we consider regular times of expressing confession of sin and repentance of our sins is so that we may not presume Upon God's grace. The reason why we encourage you to consider the song we have introduced earlier in the service, God be merciful to me, is so that we may learn not to presume upon God thinking that we are okay. Oh, friends, we may be enthusiastic about God. We may like enthusiasm about God, and there's a place for being joyful in the Lord. But friends, there's also a false joy the things of God, when we presume upon Him without considering carefully our walk with the Lord, without considering carefully the Word of God, when we pick and choose what we like from the blessings of God, oh, friends, I pray that we may not be a people who presume upon the Lord, for presuming upon the Lord is folly. And 1 Samuel chapter 4 has shown us that. May we not be like that. May we trust in Christ. May we seek the Lord. May we put our confidence in the Lord and continue to live a life of ongoing repentance and following of the Lord. Let's pray.